Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And there's got to be an admission of guilt before there can be salvation. And this is what makes verse 21 so remarkable. It's the only open acknowledgement of guilt in the whole book of Genesis. And it was important because it shows that the beginning of repentance for these brothers is an open acknowledgement of guilt. It's the beginning. It's the first step. It's the first step that the penitent thief on the cross took when he said in Luke 23, 41, Luke 23, 41, he said he talked about himself and the others, other thief. And he said, we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. And now notice the transition. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That thief pronounced first a judgment on himself, which is what the brothers did when they said in verse 21, we are verily guilty. And that's what confession is. It's a self-pronounced judgment. And they didn't blame anyone else. You know, like my boys one time when they were little and I caught little Joshua doing something wrong and he said to me, Joseph told me to do it. (laughs) And that thief, like these brothers, they made an open acknowledgement of their guilt. And that thief, he says, we receive the due reward of our deeds. That's a first big step. That's a big step, which had to be taken before he could be saved. He had to say that before he could say to the Lord in Luke 23, 42, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Because he took that first step of an open acknowledgement of his guilt, then the Lord saved him. In uh, Luke 23, 43, when he said, Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's in, in contrast to the other thief, the other thief who never openly acknowledged his guilt when he said, in Luke 23, 39, Luke 23, 39, one of the malefactors which hanged on him, railed on, which hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. See, when, that, when he said that, save thyself and us, he was saying, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be crucified as a criminal, and you should save me from being killed as a criminal. But with an open acknowledgement of sin, that's a path to salvation. Now we've got a path to salvation. Without an open acknowledgement of sin, there's no road to salvation. There's no road to salvation. It reminds me of the two little sisters that came into the child evangelism booth at the Del Mar Fair last Thursday. And there was a little girl 
Naomi. And uh, I don't know, they both had the same t-shirt on. It said, I am the big sister. <laughs> I don't know why they both had that, but there was one that was littler. There was Naomi. She was about three years old. And she sat over here in the front row. And then there was the other one, Anna. And she was four years old, and she sat next to her. And they both were sitting there in the front row in front of me. So I started asking little three-year-old Naomi if she ever lied before. And she looked at me with that look that she says, oh, I know that it's wrong to lie. So she said, no. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, she's not ready to be saved yet. <laughs> because she didn't take that first step of admitting her guilt. And then I turned to little Anna, little four-year-old Anna. I said, well, how about you, Anna? I said, have you ever lied? She didn't say a word. She just got kind of this strange smile on her face. And she took her one finger and she went like this. <laughs> I said, you mean you lied once? <laughs> she gives a, a, a resonant thought, nod. And I thought, okay, Anna's ready to be saved. She's ready to come to the Savior because she has admitted that she lied once. And so when I came to lead Anna to the Lord in the sinner's prayer, I led her to pray, Lord, please forgive me for that one lie that I told. And I said, and for many other bad things I did. So Anna could go down the road to salvation because she was admitting her guilt. And that's what's so significant about verse 21. When the brother says, we are verily guilty concerning our brothers. So the confession of sin, it has to involve also the willfulness where a person says that he personally made a decision to sin. You know, not Joseph told me to do it. And, and there's one word in verse 21 from what they said that shows this personal willfulness. What's the one word in verse 21 that the brothers said that expressed their personal decision to sin against Joseph? What is it? It's something that expresses personal will. What's the next time they said we? Would. <laughs> they said would. They said would. They would not hear. Would comes from the word will. And sin is a decision. And it's a bad choice. It's a bad will. So when they said we would not hear, that was a confession of a bad decision, of a wrong decision. It was a bad choice. They were saying, I chose a bad sin. So, so far, what we've seen from verse 21 is that sin involves four things. First, there's an open confession of sin. They said one to another. Second, there's a self-pronouncement of guilt. We are verily guilty. Third, there's a clear description of what they're guilty of, of what the sin was concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us. And fourth, there's a clear statement of their own free will that chose to sin. We would not hear. But there's a fifth part. There's a fifth part of repentance, and that's seen in the two therefore statements of verse 21 and verse 22. See, verse 21 says, therefore is this distress come upon us. And in verse 22, we read, therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Now, what this is showing us is that repentance involves a recognition of what sin deserves, of what sin deserves. When a sinner repents, 
He's filled with a sense of what he deserves. And these are the five parts of true repentance. For a complete repentance, full repentance, there's got to be an open confession of sin. There's got to be a self-pronouncement of guilt. There's got to be a clear description of exactly what the sin was. There's got to be a clear statement of the free will that was involved, that chose to sin. And there's got to be a recognition of what sin deserves. And we've got that all laid out for us here in these verses. And there's one more thing. Repentance deeply touches the soul. It's not a light thing. It's deep. And you can see this. I mean, just think of these brothers. I mean, how carefully they covered their tracks. I mean, they doctored up Joseph's coat with the blood and so forth. And to deceive, they, with this fabricated story of the wild beast that killed Joseph. And for 23 years, not one of them has ever talked about Joseph or going down to Egypt. But now repentance has so deeply been an earthquake inside of their soul that they're talking about how guilty they are and not even conscious that other people around them might hear or what they might think. I mean, after all, how about that interpreter? He understood Hebrew and repentance deeply touched them to the point that they could not suppress their self-accusation. I mean, when you look at this, for a group of seasoned con men, which is what they were. They're sure doing a bad job here, right? I mean, they weren't even thinking that all the governor has to do is turn to the interpreter and say, what are they saying? And the interpreter would say, they're saying that they are verily guilty. That's not a good idea. (laughs) That's not a good statement to stay in front of a ruler who's accusing you of being spies and threatening to kill you. You don't want to say we are verily guilty. And so, but here they are, they're saying to each other that they are guilty, and they're talking about the details of why they're guilty. In verse 21, they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Now, as they're talking, we read here that uh, they knew not, in verse 23, they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. So as they're talking among themselves about how they're guilty, and they're talking about all the details of what they're guilty of, they have no idea, no idea, that Joseph is able to hear and is hearing every word they're saying. They don't know that Joseph can understand them. Now, that's quite a scene right there. You just sort of keep that snapshot in mind, because that's really something. I mean, there they are, thinking that they're having a private conversation when they're confessing their guilt to each other, very private. And they're not knowing that their conversation is not private at all because Joseph is understanding every word they're saying. And what that scene illustrates for us is when we think about our guilt and we think that our thoughts are private and no one can hear our thoughts, Like these brothers thought that their conversation was private and no one could hear it. And every one of our thoughts is being heard by the Lord Jesus. And we don't think that that we're being, we think those are private thoughts and they're not being heard. Just like those brothers had no idea that every word of their private conversation was being understood by Joseph. I mean, just think of how the conversation of these brothers would have changed if they knew anyone else could hear them. 
I mean, they wouldn't have been saying these things. And just think how the conversation of the brothers would have changed if they knew Joseph could hear them. They wouldn't be saying these things. I mean, these brothers knew. They knew that every word that they were speaking was being heard. They wouldn't have said those things. And that's a picture of how our thoughts change when we keep in mind that each one of our thoughts is being heard by the Lord. And that's a picture of how we would not allow ourselves to think certain thoughts if we're consciously aware that each word of our thoughts is being heard by the Lord. You know, in a certain country where we have a compound that I won't say the name of, phone conversations are monitored by the government. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. All of a sudden, there's a knock on a door and police say that they want to question somebody and that person is never seen again. Anyway, they're monitored by the government. And let me tell you, there's a difference when I talk on the phone with a person in that country versus when I talk on the phone with a person in the U.S. When I know that my conversation is being listened to, I think before I speak because I know I'm being heard by another. And that's how we should view our thoughts. That's how we should view our thoughts, like we're being listened in on by the Lord, and there's no such thing as the private thoughts. This is the truth that David was trying to get his son Solomon to understand when he said in 1 Chronicles 28.9, 1 Chronicles 28.9, and you just picture David now speaking to his son, really trying to pour his heart out into his son, and he says in 1 Chronicles 28.9, Thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father. Serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he'll be found of thee. See, David, he was so impressed with this that he said in Psalm 139.1, Psalm 139.1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. And it was these hidden, hidden thoughts of man's heart that God finally decided to give up on trying to correct man and instead bring in the great flood judgment on the earth when he said in Genesis 6-5, Genesis 6-5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So like the brothers thinking that their words were private and they were hid when all along Joseph is understanding every word. When we understand that, that the Lord is understanding every one of our thoughts, we'll instantly confess foolish thoughts. Why? Because foolish thoughts are sin. As it says in Proverbs 24.9, Proverbs 24.9, the thought of foolishness is sin. Sin starts with thoughts, which is why what can be seen in movies and in much of the TV is so bad because it plants sinful thoughts in the mind and they have to be confessed. And the devil's great deception is that, no, 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 sin is only actions, not thoughts. You don't have to confess your thoughts. You only have to confess your actions. So it's okay, watch those movies, watch those shows. Let them plant dirty thoughts in your minds because it's really not sin. But the truth is, Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. And the truth is, Mark 7, 21, Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, 
adulteries, fornications, murders. Boy, that pretty much sums up what's on TV and the movies today, right? Adulteries, fornications, and murders. I mean, what do you think Joseph was thinking? What do you think Joseph was thinking? He's hearing all these things. He hears them say, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in verse 21. What do you think he was thinking when he heard his brothers say in verse 21, we are verily guilty concerning our brother? Now this is Joseph. What do you think he was thinking? Yeah, good step in the right direction. It's a good step in the right direction. We can imagine him saying to himself, oh, they're moving in the right direction. Boy, I'm sure I'm looking forward to the time when they're going to confess to me their guilt. That would be nice. I mean, Joseph is hearing, he's longing. When he's hearing, he's longing. He's longing for the day when they're going to confess their guilt. Like the Lord hearing our private thoughts and longing. Well, when is he going to confess that to me? And fortunately, in the case of the brothers, there is a time when the brothers will fully repent and ask Joseph for forgiveness, but not just yet. They're still in the hawking among one to another stage. Now, we read about some de- these details in their conversation in verse 21. It says, they said, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us we would not hear. Now, that's surprising for us, because we didn't know about this. We didn't know about the anguish of his soul that could be seen on Joseph's face. I mean, all we knew was from Genesis 37 23, when we read about the account, Genesis 23, sorry, 37, 23 says, it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brother that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him, cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So there's nothing in that account. There's nothing in Genesis 37 about any anguish seen on his face, Joseph's soul. And there's nothing in Genesis 37 about Joseph begging them to not do what they did to him. And there's nothing in Genesis 37 about their refusal to hear Joseph's cries for mercies. So when we read all these details in verse 21, it's just a surprise. Now, it's not hard to imagine, of course. We could think, okay, you know, yeah, anguish, you know, crying from, yeah, but the details were not given to us in chapter 37. But now we have all these new details, and they're laid out for us with a crystal clarity. And it sort of feels like, a little bit like we're in some kind of a, an interrogation room of a police station. And all of a sudden, these details are spilling out with the confession of full of details. But from these details, we're learning about what Joseph, more about what he suffered in, during that time. Because when these brothers are talking about seeing the anguish of his soul, that's a very detailed picture that they had in their minds. It was a perfect memory of what Joseph's face looked like. They could have drawn you a picture that was as good as a photograph of that time when they were casting him into the pit. I mean, that image of Joseph's face was etched in perfect relief into the memories of their consciences. As we see the brothers here relate with such crystal clarity, all these details about what happened 23 years ago, 23 years ago, what this shows us is that time does not blot out the records on the conscience. And their consciences brought back the exact details 
of what happened 23 years ago. I mean, just notice the words there in verse 21, we saw, we saw. That shows us how vividly they remembered the scene of the anguish on Joseph's face. It's 23 years ago, and they're seeing every wrinkle on Joseph's face of anguish. It's 23 years ago. They're hearing now the exact sound of Joseph's crying voice. It's 23 years ago, and they're hearing every word that Joseph screamed to them as he pleaded for mercy. Now, you're sitting here right now. How much can you remember of what happened 23 years ago? I mean, so you think back. I don't know, maybe you've got a perfect, I can't remember anything. I can't remember what happened 23 hours ago. Was it 23 years ago? I doubt there's very much you can remember of what happened for 23 years ago. But in verse 21, they can remember the exact look of anguish on Joseph's face. And that was 23 years ago. How could they remember that? How could they remember that? Because of the work of conscience. Conscience. When we witness to a lost person, you know we're looking for a partnership. We're looking for a couple of partnerships in this game. The first partnership we're looking for is the partnership of the person's conscience to work with us. And the second partnership we're looking for is the work of God in bringing trouble into that person's life. And if we went to these brothers before the famine and we said, boys, you are sinners, they would say, we don't feel that bad. (laughs) We're really quite comfortable in life. There's no big problems in life. And then if we said, you need a savior, they'd say, savior from what? You know, know, when I drive over the Coronado Bridge, I'm looking forward to get to the beach, not stop halfway and jump over. (laughs) And what they are saying is, I have suppressed my memory and guilt and thoughts of my sins. You know, it reminds me of when I had lunch with a friend of mine and I asked him if he was ready to die and he said to me, I don't think about it. I just push all those thoughts out of my mind. But death, the body deteriorates. Actually, it's deteriorating before death, but it's anyways, death, it really deteriorates. (laughs) But the conscience and memories do not, do not. And it's the restoration of perfect memory that makes hell so terrible. The worst word that Abraham said to the rich man who lifted up his eyes in hell in Luke 16.25, Luke 16.25, but Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. It's that word, remember. Abraham said to him, remember. He says to the rich man in hell, remember. That was terrible because it shows that people in hell have the perfect memories of what they wish they could have forgotten. And as a matter of fact, this picture that we have here illustrates the truth. I mean, here are the brothers. They're in front of Joseph. He's the ruler. They don't know he's Joseph. He's the ruler of Egypt. The brothers have now fallen into the hands of Joseph. And all the details of their sins have come perfectly back to them before their eyes. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.com. 
friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.